Hey everyone, welcome to the Family Business Leadership Podcast with Robin Lechinger. Every day, Robin leads and guides family businesses as a lawyer and board member. This series, brought to you by SMB Interim Management and Yates Advisors, focuses on major challenges facing today's family-owned businesses. Each podcast will showcase frontline leaders exploring their personal experiences and best practice solutions. If you're a family leader, board member, shareholder, or professional advisor, you will welcome proven approaches to the challenges of governance, succession, leadership, strategy, multi-generation ownership, and more. And now, let's hear from Robin as she introduces us to today's guest. The topic of today's podcast is the value of independent board members on a family business board. My guest today is Bill Hudson. Bill is an active fourth generation family business owner, as well as an independent board member on other families' family business boards. Welcome, Bill. Well, thank you. It's a thrill to be with you today. Bill, I know you as an active fourth-generation family business owner, as well as an independent board member on other families' family business boards. In fact, currently, you are the first independent chairman on a third transitioning to fourth-generation family business holding company board. So in addition to all your firsthand experience as a board member, you have been recognized for your board expertise by receiving the Director to Watch Award in 2018, and indeed several times in the past few years, the boards on which you have sat have received the Private Company Board of the Year Award. So we're very fortunate to have such expertise on our podcast today. Let's start with the basics. Yeah. How do you define an independent board member? Well, an independent board member definition is actually pretty simple. An independent board member by definition is not a family member. So you're not a family member. You're not a majority stockholder. You're not an employee of the company with special interests of uh, the decisions that may get made in the boardroom. And the independent board member brings with them a certain set of skills that really would not be resident to that level within the company. And that's why they are sought out from outside of the company and outside of the family. They have no ties directly to the company. In other words, they're not being compensated as an employee. Their business is not doing business with that particular board. So like a lawyer or an accountant or a particular vendor or supplier to the company would not be deemed an independent board member if they were on the board? Uh, Not in my view, they would not be. If you have a vested interest in that company, you're really not going to be as bold. What you want out of an independent board member is a full-throated, open, honest opinion and insights into your organization or the opportunities and challenges that your organization faces. If my future well-being is dependent on them liking me and thinking I'm saying good things about them, I'm gonna, I might hold back. And frankly, I'm not being paid to hold back. Let me stop you there as it relates to in-laws. Would you consider in-laws independent board members if they were to sit on the family's business board? I would consider them a non-independent board member. 
they're married into the family. And most families today would define an in-law as a full-throated family member of equivalent status. So now that we've set the stage for what is deemed an independent board member, let's talk about why you believe they're an asset. Yeah, just a few things that come to mind on that. Uh, First and foremost, I have seen, uh, so not only do I believe this, but I know it to be true, is that a board that has uh, independent board members is going to create long-term value in that company faster than they otherwise would have been able to. Can you give us an anecdote about the faster? Sure. And I'll just use an example of for myself is that I was brought onto a board. Uh, it was an advisory board, not a fiduciary board. And advisory boards, I think, can create a lot of value really quick. But I was brought on because of my global experience, specifically in manufacturing and logistics in China. And this company, which was a U.S.-based manufacturing entity, their family wanted to expand into Asia very specifically for production opportunities. And they didn't have the slightest clue about how to go about it. The great thing was they recognized that. They had a good strategic outline of how they wanted to go about these things, uh, and our advisory board helped them along, but I and some others, frankly, were able to provide information and contacts and some risk identification that allowed them to create a much smoother runway to avoid some of the pitfalls that I, frankly, had learned over many years having run into them myself. Very importantly, um, the cultural aspects of doing business in Asia, which are very different than in the United States. So your approach, your patience, uh, a host of other things that need to be really kept in mind because it's important for your your long-term success. So that's just one example. Uh, If they had gone about it on their own with you know, just fly over there and start walking around trying to do things, it would have taken them much, much longer. We had their legal framework done really in a matter of months. In addition to helping make faster decisions on behalf of the family, what other value, in your opinion, do independent board members bring to the table? Honestly, I think that you're going to get more impactful ideas out of independent board members. And by better, I mean ones that really create values. I operate from the assumption that a board of directors has a role. Depending on where the company is in its trajectory, those needs could be different, and maybe we can talk about that later. But the independent board member is going to be able to bring ideas that will allow that company to really create a larger impact to their value creation. As a board, my, one of my key roles is creating long-term value. One of the key blocking and tackling moves is an independent director. You know, if I want to get from point A to point B, uh, let somebody that's already at point B help me get there quicker. Bill, you clearly believe, and I echo the sentiment that independent board members with their experiences and their unique expertise add value to family business boards. Can you give us an example where the board included independent board members, but the family business did not get value from them? 
Yes. You know, my own company is uh, thankfully 117 years old and we've been around a long time. And it's impressive. <laughs> thank you. As you had mentioned in the uh, opening, I'm fourth generation in that activity. So as you might imagine, we've taken on a lot of different looks and structures over our 117 years. And I can remember very early on in my tenure with the company, I've been with the company now 36 years, early on in my tenure, when I was invited to a board meeting as a guest, I was very nervous and I thought, oh boy, this is going to be so exciting. The board, the board. And you always hear people talking about the board. And so... In I go, and my father, bless his heart, is the chairman and doing a great job, a very strong leader with outstanding vision and results, but he had his board the way he wanted it. This would have been a case where he had a, a lawyer, our lawyer on the board, called him an independent, but he really wasn't. But he had an environment in the room at that time that uh, was a little bit surprising to me because... Most of the directors spent most of their time listening. The company did not have the benefit of the experience of these directors because they weren't talking. They weren't sharing. They weren't elevating ideas. They weren't necessarily digging deep through challenge type questions or presenting alternate scenarios. Even though the company is incredibly successful, the company um, didn't benefit from those folks being in the room. This really struck me at the time. I didn't understand why. Uh, I came to learn over time later that, you know, it was a missed opportunity. Bill, I have been in boardrooms where one dominant voice stifled the others. And it sounds like your father's board may have suffered from that dynamic. I can tell you that the atmosphere within that particular boardroom was such that my father, who's incredibly strong character, very forceful, that dynamic, frankly, is very prevalent in family businesses, particularly early generation family businesses, right? So first and second. Yeah, first and second generation businesses, you're, you're going to have those situations. An enlightened board chair, an enlightened individual will, will just recognize that I can do better and I need help. I'm going to tee things up and I'm going to let other people talk. One of the keys to a high impact boardroom is that the directors do 80% of the talking. So think of boardrooms that you've been in and management comes in and they put up a big slide deck and they go through it. It's backward looking. You've already seen the deck because you got it a week before the meeting and you read it all. Number one, if you got it and read it, if you got some clarifying questions, go for it, but don't spend much time on it. Management and the chair should have very specific questions that they need help with on that on a particular topic that's going to help move them towards their strategic ends. And that's how you create high impact. So now that we've talked about the... Can I, can I bring up, Robin, two more things about the value? Oh, absolutely. Go ahead. Go ahead. One thing that's really important is that you want to be completely business focused. Family affairs are important and they impact the business, but it's important for a family, a business owning family that has some diverse level of family stockholders, for them to have structures in place 
so that they can deal with their family issues in, let's say, the family council. Right. You want those things dealt with there rather than in your business boardroom. Yeah. So let me recap that. So what you're saying yeah. is by having independence on the board, you are actually more inclined to keep the family matters out of the business boardroom and put them where they belong, which may be at the family kitchen table, the family council room, whatever it is, but out of the family business boardroom. And then finally, I just will say, because uh, it's really important activity of the board, is I think you get better risk mitigation when you have independent board members. And the reason for that is the identification of There's a couple of steps. First is you identify your risks. Second, you come up with methods and practices to mitigate them. Third, you're going to monitor them. Each step of that process, the experience that an independent board member has is going to just improve the outcomes. So let's just recap that really quickly before we move to sure. the next topic. From your perspective, the value that independent board members bring to a family business board are moving through particular issues quicker simply because that independent board member has those experiences, hence the reason they're on the board. There are more impactful and maybe even better ideas that are brought to the table. You keep family matters out of the family business boardroom and you put them, leave them where they belong in the family council area or family kitchen table. And finally, they help with risk mitigation. All right, Bill, now let's pivot and talk about process. And by that, I mean the process for selecting an independent board member to one's family business board. At the very beginning, the family should have already had very in-depth and robust discussions that led them to a conclusion, we need independent directors. Here's how many we need, and here's why. So they're already of the mindset that this is right for their business, that's important. Once that's accomplished, it's up to the current board to start off the process. Running that process is the responsibility of the governance committee. And you were once a chair of a governance committee on a board I sat on with you, and I am currently a chair of a governance committee of a board I sit on, a family business board. So yes, right. uh, very familiar with those type of committees. Sure. And they're really important because that's where a lot of the legwork gets done. In using that example, the board as a whole decides, we're, you know, we, we have a director position that's open. We're going to fill it. It's for an independent director. The governance committee should have a process, and we can go into that a little bit later, but of how they're going to go about defining what they need. So the governance committee does the legwork of filling the funnel of potential candidates. And then it comes to decision time. And so let's say you've got your top two. There's been a lot of good work done to get down to two people. Either of them would be great. Then you really, in my view, it's important that all of the board directors have had an opportunity to interview the candidates. Typically in a family business will be certain family members that should also have an opportunity. And remembering that ultimately the shareholders vote for the election of directors. And so you want to preload on the front end. You don't want surprises to your shareholder group. You want them to know quite a bit about them. And if they need an opportunity to speak to that person, they should have that opportunity. And so you can structure a process that gives them that opportunity 
Also, it's critically important that the CEO and other members of the leadership team, depending on the structure of the company, has an opportunity to evaluate and share their opinions. So actually, Bill, what you're really moving to is the next topic I wanted to ask you about, which is what criteria should be used in compiling a list of potential board candidates. Speak a little bit about how you go about determining what those criteria are. Yeah, well, that's a great question because it's so fundamental to having a positive outcome. I'm a big believer in process and discipline. It's very easy. Well, it, actually, it's typical in the first or second generation family business. The dominant owner and CEO is going to say, hey, you know, Charlie that I play golf with is terrific. You know, I think a lot about that person. We're good friends. We're going to bring him on my board and or they reach out within a very short, closed community of acquaintances. It doesn't mean they're not bringing on good people. It just, to me, that means that the process does not open up a wider field where they might get something better. The process starts with an understanding first of where we are today. Where are we at? What are we trying to accomplish? Where are we going? Let me just stop you there for a moment. When you say, where are we at? What are you talking about? Sure. That's a good question. Where am I in the life cycle of a business, right? Am I a startup? I have very different needs as a startup. Am I a mature business? And I should I be looking at other things to help grow? Um, but so that, that where am I in the life cycle is important, but also where am I as a business? You know, what is my business? How am I doing? Why am I doing? What am so I doing? Do you need strategic planning to have been done first? I've often worried, you know, wondered about that. The chicken and egg question, which comes first? I yep. do my strategic plan, then I pick my new director. I pick my new director because I want my new director to influence my strategic plan. In my opinion, the strategic plan comes first. Ideally, you have an existing board and you are looking for independence to put on that board, but you know where you're going. Knowing where you're going three and five years out is important in defining what you need to help you get there. Now we've defined that we have a plan that we know about, a vision for five years out. We know where we're at today. We know where we want to be. Now we look at our board and we independently assess each board member as to the skills that they bring to the table. It can be a very simple process but you create a matrix of skills and experiences and you basically check it off. Then you have a picture of your current board members as you are today. And now looking down the road and I say, I really need international experience to execute on our long-term plan. Effectively, what you've done is you've identified the gap. That gap then helps you write up your director specification. So, okay. So you do the skills matrix, if I can use that yeah. term, yep. with all of the existing board members. You yep. figure out where the gaps are for your, based on your strategic plan or your vision of where you want to go. And then you can use that gap to identify the board position and who you're the type of person with the kinds of skills and experiences to fill that gap. Exactly right. right. We're going to take a break to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, we're going to have Bill talk about whether that position description includes needing experience with family businesses in particular. 
This podcast is sponsored and produced by SMB Interim Management and Yate Advisors. SMB Interim Management works with privately owned businesses that request assistance to solve significant time-sensitive operational challenges. SMB's core business is the placement of an interim C-suite executive to assist in solving critical operational challenges or to shepherd an organization through an unexpected departure. Their executives are uniquely matched to the industry and challenge for each assignment. SMB has a proven group of over 700 senior executives that can be deployed on short notice to solve the client's issues and then exit. Contact SMB at smbim.com. That's smbim.com. Yet Advisors helps law firms build family business practices. Through team coaching and consulting, Yate helps lawyers create demand for their legal services by recognizing their unique needs of family businesses. Yate will help your firm understand family businesses and develop solutions to their most important challenges. Find us at yatesadvisors.com, Y-A-T-E-A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S.com. Welcome back, Bill. Why don't you share with us whether you think having previous family board experience is a necessity for these independent board members? Robin, I really do think it's important that we have independent directors that have either served on a family business board. They may actually have a company where they are uh, part of a family that owns a business, uh, or they are in some other way closely aligned so that they have had the experience of understanding the nuance of a family business. I think that's important because one of the greatest elements of a family business is the long-term view. Yes, please go on. No, we hear about that a lot. The the patient capital, the long-term, taking the long-term view. Yes, and so that is really important because you can bring somebody on from that's really only had public company experience. Doesn't mean that they cannot be great board members, but their field of vision tends to be much shorter and decisions that get made in shorter timeframes have a big impact on culture. The long-term view not only benefits culture and your employee base or has the potential to, but it also has the ability to open up decisions that would not be there in a a short-term view. All right. So having either served on a family business board or coming from a family business yourself is actually, from your perspective, and I I echo it, a really a necessity almost. So let's move to, in your opinion, what is the right balance or ratio of family business board members and independent? What's the right mix? More independents are better. The more, the better. That is a difficult subject within any family for a couple of reasons. One, the family members typically want to know quite a bit about the goings-on in a business. As a family moves through generations, that becomes harder to communicate. Uh, So you need processes that are set up, and typically that happens through the family councils and family meetings. My view is the boardroom. Now, the typical board is going to meet for four or five hours, four times a year. What I want to get out of there is I want to help management move. I want to help management achieve. And if I'm- Create value. Create value. 
if I'm spending half of my time just educating people on what's going on in the business, I don't think that's time well spent. I think ideally, a family has their own structure set up. They appoint a family director or two, and those two individuals become responsible for bringing meeting information back to the family and their family meetings. On In this hypothetical board, I'm going to have uh, probably five independents. The problem with that, potential problem, is the family's going to say, well, wait a second, if these folks vote five to two, and we're, we're two family members that said no, we got a problem. Right. But you can work around that. In other words, for any kind of major decision, which could be defined, you could say a, at least one family director has to agree. I mean, there are workarounds, right? Yes, there are. You know, the family can also change directors at any time. I think it's better if the ratio of independence to non-independence should be tilted towards independence being the majority. On average, Bill, how long should one expect this process to take? We know up front, if we're replacing a director, typically we know because they're terming out or something like that's happening. So governance committee starts, they go through the process that we discussed earlier. And I want to engage outside firm or firms that's going to help me cast that net. And then, and they're also going to help me filter through the massive number of people that are going to raise their hand and say, I want to be on your board because I've heard about your boards. That process, though, basically really is going to take six to nine months. Six months is a fast track in my view. So we've gone through, let's say, this six to nine month process. We found our candidate. The candidate has accepted, been elected by the shareholders. Spend a few moments talking about the importance of onboarding that person and what onboarding looks like. Great question. I love it. The goal is on day one on your first meeting, I want you contributing value. Wow. Day one. All right. Day okay. One. Then let's first, hear about this onboarding process that's going to get them meeting. to day one adding value. The onboarding process is going to include a lot of things. It's good to set up like a data room. Like if you were selling a company, you'd have a data room. You have not only financials, you have examples of previous board decks and documents. You have what I like to call the foundational documents, the articles of incorporation, uh, family bylaws. You want a stockholder agreement. It's critical that the director knows and understands those deeply. Also, you want to have... Uh, the strategic plan or business unit level operating plans. You want to see the current budget. Past board books. A couple of those. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. You want to include that. So they will see, uh, you know, what was the last meeting like? And what, what, what did you guys talk about? What the agenda look like? All of the documentation that is going to help a director get up to speed at their own time frame, just reading about things. Take us from the data room to what the interpersonal onboarding looks like? The next element then is I've gone through that information now armed with that and a bunch of questions. I need to talk to some people. Let's set up a round of meetings uh, where I'll come into one of the company sites and I will have an opportunity to speak with all of the functional leaders. We're just going to tell me about their business. We're going to talk about their business and I may have specific questions and they may have uh, a high level introduction for me and we can walk around and I can look and I can see and I can talk to people on the floor if it's in a manufacturing plant. But I want to get a real feel for what's happening in those businesses from the people in the businesses. 
The other thing is it's important for a board, one of the directors to become a mentor. Okay. And so I'm an existing director. I've been around for a while and here comes the new director and I'm assigned to be the mentor and I'm going to share with them my thoughts and opinions. I'm going to answer as many questions as I can. Uh, We'll have open discussion uh, and they can say, well, what's the family really like? (laughs) I was actually going to ask you that is part of this onboarding process include speaking to the family. Do you recommend that in this onboarding period? Or is that something that you would suggest comes later? It's absolutely a good idea. All directors should have relationships with the family members that starts as you're coming into the company. Those are really good, fruitful meetings because the family values and the family expectations are really important. And one of the jobs of the directors is to represent those elements and make sure they're resident in the company. And so by interacting with the family early on, a new director has an opportunity to get grounded in those values and expectations and what they mean. I want to add one last important onboarding step. Okay. That that is the decorum and the expectations in the boardroom and the process that we run. In my opinion, the chairman of the board should meet with that new director as part of the onboarding process to explain, here's how we run our meetings. Here's why we run them this way. And here's the expectations. Now on the board that I chair that you mentioned before, we implement a regimented high-impact board system. It's not a typical board meeting. So we have very specific training sessions. Once somebody gets up on the system, it's amazing how more impactful they are in a meeting. What, in your opinion, are the top four priorities an independent board member should focus when they join a family business board? Well, I think those are definitely aligned with what I would call the priorities of the board. First and foremost, the major responsibility of any board of directors is the CEO, the identification, the recruitment, the motivation, the retention, the challenging, the help, everything around that CEO is the responsibility of the board because that person is the one responsible for execution of anything that comes out of the boardroom. And that relationship is so important. That's job one. Without that, none of the rest really matters. Secondarily, then, is strategy, the culture, and capital allocation. All of those things in concert contribute significantly to the creation of long-term value. The other important element for the board and the independent directors is communication with the family and the shareholders. As independents, we need to know and understand what the needs and wants, the values, the expectations of the family are. Robin, when you and I served on a board together, you ran a really great project, which lives on today. You developed a strong process of surveying that helped synthesize what the expectations of the family are. That helped immensely in planning Uh, The other element then has to do with risk. Risk is a really important job of the board. As I mentioned before, there's the identification of risk, planning for it or the mitigation of it, the ongoing monitoring of that. Uh, But that's an oversight function that's really important and one that the board can really add a lot of value in that regard. Thanks, Bill. I want to touch on what I know is a sensitive topic, but I think one that 
our audience will be eager to hear about, and that's compensation. Talk generally to me about your feelings or opinions on board compensation as between independent board members and family members. I do not believe that family members or non-independents should be paid the same amount as the independent directors. It's not because both groups aren't bringing value to the board. They both are. They're doing it in different ways. But the real compensation for the family comes through value creation. Any money that is used elsewhere, so in this case to compensate a family director to the level of an independent director, is not used in the business. I want to have that money to put in the business to create value. That doesn't mean a family member is not compensated, right? Their time is very valuable and important and should be compensated and recognized. That doesn't mean that they are not sharing in the benefits of the board. Their real payoff comes later. I can tell you in my own business, I'm not getting anything to to be on the board. So let me ask you this. Do you know if your opinion is a widespread opinion? In other words, it's shared by many. Do you have a sense at all? Uh, Because I know that you spend a lot of time working with private directors association and other organizations that deal with this issue quite a bit. So I'd be curious if where your opinion falls on the spectrum. I used the word evolution before our cycle, and I I think that's exactly what the subject falls within. It it has been evolving forever. Family members typically were either not compensated or had very little compensation for their director work. Fundamentally, I believe in that, and I think it's a good thing. Over time, as people want to try different areas of motivation, or maybe if we paid them more, they would provide more value, or maybe they would do this or that. Personally, I don't see the returns. One of the issues I think that doesn't get talked about is the potential for resentment when an independent director will say, you know, I'm in here crushing it all the time, and family member comes on, and frankly, they're great in different areas, but in terms of the business level experience that's not as strong. And so they're not delivering like I do, but they're getting the same amount of money. It's a very sensitive topic. Yes. It's not unusual for family members to be on the board strictly as a vehicle to get money to them. That doesn't make it wrong. It impacts the environment in the boardroom. I talked about my own business board many years ago with my father and His sister was on the board, fabulous individual, really smart, great in her own right, a lot of, you know, great ideas and things, frankly, was a a means to get money to her. But that was okay, kind of. It was okay in the familial sense, but in the demeanor of the boardroom, it became a little difficult. One way to kind of nip it in the bud. And I think that's where people have trended towards is to say, you know what, everybody's just going to get the same thing. You're all directors. So we're just going to all directors make this much. Okay. So Bill, before we leave the sensitive topic of compensation, is there anything else you'd like to share? Yeah. Besides who's being compensated, a, a big question a lot of us always wrestle with is how do we compensate them? Here again, you've got a cycle or a pendulum that swings. Oftentimes you have people talk about getting an annual retainer that's paid quarterly. You get a meeting fee. If it's in person, it's so much. 
there's all kinds of ways that this has been carved up over time. There is a tendency in a lot of firms, and I think this has really been led by uh, some of the public companies to just come really with, uh, here's how much money you get on an annual basis in cash for being a director. Uh, There's an expectation that you're going to serve on a committee and we might give you a kicker if you're the chair, but you know we're not going to carve it up by meeting fees and phone fees. You know we understand you're going to be available for us. So it, it it changes fundamentally. My belief is that we oftentimes hear independent directors that serve on family business boards that they don't do it for the money. My experience with outside directors is that they really want to help. That said, however, you do need to recognize the value of someone's time. And so while an independent director may not do it for the money, I do want to at least get enough money that I, I feel as though I'm not wasting my time completely. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm being recognized. The two components to me are that cash for time and effort, but also having alignment to results. I want my directors to be aligned with my shareholders. Bill, first of all, thank you for all of this. And I'm going to ask you one final question that I think will be insightful for our audience. And that is, what do you believe family business boards should be gearing up for or thinking about it as it relates to the future business environment? Robin, what a pointed question and so relevant today. It was all hands on deck for the last two years. COVID hit and it just threw everything in the air and in boardrooms across the globe, not just our country. Kudos to so many great people, not only within the companies, but in the boardrooms that helped us all get through that so well. And here we are today, as you say, and while things are still topsy-turvy, we're all trying to come out of this and we need to. And uh, it's important if we've gotten this far, we can go farther. As I look forward, I think of uh, pretty much three areas. The first one is people-related. Recruitment, development, and retention of people is more important than it ever has been. I would put this under a strategy that I would call how to win from home. By that, I mean this new workforce, it's here to stay. It's going to change a little bit as people go back to the office, but We've all recognized that we can operate our businesses like they are with some degree of flexibility with an at-home or a remote workforce. Not every function, and if you're a service business, it's more people. If you're a manufacturing business, obviously it's less, but that doesn't mean that manufacturing companies aren't going to be looking at automation. It's the people aspect, which is critical to the success of any business. And this work from home provides so many opportunities for us. So I like to ask the question of, hey, you know what, let's just say, hopefully we want to go back to the office in a big way, but let's just say we're not. Let's build a company that's going to do what we do better than we've done it today for our customers on a completely remote strategy. If I'm building a fresh company based on remote working, what does that look like? What's different? What does that do to my SGNA? A whole host of questions that can, it's a good exercise. The other then is the importance of getting even closer to our customers. I've always been an enormous fan of knowing and understanding our customers. And then the other one, I think, is the importance of diversification strategies. Diversifying companies obviously lowers the risk 
against cyclical and other market type impacts. So people, our customers, and diversification within the company, I think are three really big things. Bill, thank you. It is so obvious to me how much thought and effort you put into putting this all together. It has not gone unnoticed and it is deeply, deeply appreciated. So thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's, uh, I, I really am honored that you asked me to participate and it's really fun to participate in this way with you. Thanks. Thank you for listening. Subscribe to the podcast and hear more from family business leaders who have addressed issues of critical importance to family-owned business. For more information about the podcast, SMB Interim Management, Yate Advisors, or Robin Lutchinger, visit us at familybizleadership.com. That's B-I-Z, biz. Familybizleadership.com.